0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton.
1: You know i know i hear i see the social media posts and uh, the, i get the letters and i get the emails where you know encouraging people to to uh, buy their dough licenses and burn them all and keep one well that's fine because you know we basically still um, look at the number of tags it takes to harvest a deer that's fundamentally in a simplified way how we determine if we need to kill 3,000 deer in this wildlife management unit In many cases, you know, we know we're going to need four tags to get that harvest. So we're trying to hit that goal. not trying to wipe out the deer. And most wildlife management units, we're just trying to stabilize
0: the deer herd. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 166, the State of Pennsylvania PGC Edition. This week, I have Brian Burhans, the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, on the line with me. And this is basically a state of the union about the state of Pennsylvania, but we're talking about the Game Commission and sort of how things are working uh, with them. We're going to be talking about the 2023 bear season, turkey numbers, uh, sort of the not unofficial look at the deer season in 2023, and also the importance of deer numbers and doe harvest. Uh, and then we're also going to be talking about what looks, what, the, what things are going to look like in 2024 and how proposed plans sort of work uh, as far as public uh, comments being put in and present presentations to the public and, and things of that nature. So let's get started with this episode right now. all right everyone welcome back uh the what has turned into now annual first of the year episode this is i believe the third time now having uh brian Burhan's on from the game commission brian how are you doing today Man, could not be better coming out
1: of one hunting season getting ready to come into one of my favorites the flintlock season <clears> i always like being cold and this year i am equipped with a jacket and a battery for heat
0: <laughs> uh, I, uh, a couple years ago, my father got me one of the Milwaukee heated vests and, mm. um, man, that has been a game changer. Um, I feel at times a little bit like a fraud, uh, sitting in the woods and, and wearing that, but you know what, the more I think about it, the more I think hunting supposed to be fun uh, being warm is a lot more fun than not, than, you know, be than being cold. all day
1: long. It's better than hypothermia. Let me tell you.
0: <laughs> so Brian, um, you know, we've talked in the last couple of years, we've had this sort of state of the game commission, uh, episode the last couple of years. And I wanted to do something very similar this year and just sort of see like where things, uh, stand with the game commission, as far as like this past year and then some things to, to look forward to this upcoming year Um, you know in the last couple years that we've talked about this kind of stuff we've had some real big changes from time to time um, with some new seasons and some new things with CWD and stuff like that but let's let's look at at 2023 and you know overall how do you think the year went for the game commission?
1: I think overall it
0: went pretty much like it always does. It went really
1: well. Um, you know, a couple things that stand out, for example, our bear harvest was lower this year, but that was expected um, because we've been, we manage bear populations differently. when we do whitetail deer. Whitetail deer, you know, it's about balancing the whitetail deer herd with the available habitat um, and making sure we have good, healthy deer. And then we've got CWD, which complicates deer management because you really want to limit the growth of that deer herd in those situations. Black bears are different in that we manage it based on the complaints. Black bears are a wonderful species, but they can get themselves in trouble. They can create a lot of issues with farmers and, you know, getting into trash cans. And, you know, we have a very healthy, robust uh, black bear population in Pennsylvania. Um, And so we've been we've brought that intentionally brought that population down from about 20,000 bears statewide to about uh, 16,000 bears statewide. Uh, as a result, you know, we're somewhere usually within 35 to 36, 3800 bears in the fall that will harvest. We've had some early season opportunities that we purposely put in there because you're going to get to that female population, the sow population, and that's what you're going to have to have in order to manage that, that bear population size. Um, so we've achieved that goal. And I think one of the changes you may see come into the January board meeting uh, is some of the early seasons of shortening, for example, maybe the, uh, the uh, uh, muzzleloader season uh, by, a few, by several days in order to reduce now some of that sow harvest that goes on in order to start to uh, level out the population. So we've achieved our goals of getting it down to a more reasonable number. And uh, so I would anticipate seeing some small changes in there. I, I don't anticipate this year any big changes. Um, you know, so I know sunny hunting is being discussed and hopefully soon in the legislature there's not enough time to implement that this year. Um, hopefully that's a discussion we'll be having, having for next year. Um, but that's proved to be real popular uh, amongst our hunters. It's the sunny hunting opportunities. So, you know, with black bears, that little bit of a change. Um, Whitetail deer, I don't expect any big, big changes. Uh, we are struggling really to meet some of our harvest goals uh, for white deer. You know, white deer are not like peanut butter. You can't spread them evenly over the landscapes. They they are where they are. It's kind of like turkeys. You know, fall turkeys is, you know, really interesting because I get feedback and comments on fall turkeys. As I like, you know, I've hiked mile after mile and I can't find even a scratching. And I did the same thing this fall. I hiked mile after mile after mile. But these fall birds they congregate together um, and you get these large fall flocks. And then when you find them, boy, you're in birds. Um, you just you just got to get in there and find them. And deer are the same way. Once the pressure starts coming in there, you know, you've got bear season or you've got archery season, which is probably limited, you know, kind of a, a light impact on the deer behavior and then the rut hits, and then we've got your fall turkey seasons. You get then you get your bear season. So you got a lot of hunter pressure in the woods moving deer around. Deer have no idea that. You're hunting bears or you're hunting deer. They just don't like people and want to stay away from people. So they start and then rifle deer season hits and they're sticking to the thick stuff pretty heavily. So uh deer season's about finding where the deer are. And, uh, you know, it's, but, you know, I'm pretty much a public land hunter, hunt up in the 2G uh, WMU quite almost all the time. That's where my traditional camp is. And, and I uh, love hunting up there, see lots of deer, see elk, I um, haven't seen many bears yet, but um, lots of, tur- well, some turkeys. I'm a turkey hunter, so I'm not going to say lots of turkeys. I've seen a turkey. <laughs> but, uh, so I don't see a lot of changes. You know, we look at our rough grouse populations. Um, you know, we've had some uh, really hard years with West Nile virus, um, and our flush rates um, are down a little bit, as you'd expect. Um, we did, interesting, we had did some research to ask the question, Are, are is our population reduced enough where we have... S- basically isolated populations of grouse. And that can create some issues as far as small populations can tend to blink out over time, especially in game birds like grouse or if you're talking about quail. So that is really, um, that research fortunately came back and said, no, you're getting the breeding. These populations are breeding amongst themselves. They're not isolated. So that was really good news. You know, in March, there's really some exciting uh, news be the first time we've had this species back in Pennsylvania since probably probably the 80s or 90s is bobwhite quail. So we've been working for many years uh, with Letterkenny Army Depot to actually create quail habitat. Uh, quail was a native species to Pennsylvania. I remember Growing up in southeastern Pennsylvania, and I saw a few quail. Now they could have been released for all I knew, but I, I had. But we have records of wild quail still in Pennsylvania at, that, at during that time. So it would have been the 70s and 80s. Um, and we we'll, we've worked with Letter Kenny and so many partners, National Wild Turkey Federation, and so many great partners out there to create habitat for quail. So I'm excited that we've got a number of donor states uh, from across the United States that are going to be donating wild quail. Um, and we'll be putting quail into that area. Now, our our expectation is not that we're going to be restoring huntable populations to quail in Pennsylvania, because we simply, on a large extent, don't have good quail habitat with changes in agricultural practices and the way agriculture is today compared to what it was 50 years ago. It's a lot different, Um, but it's pretty exciting to be able to bring a species that really is from Pennsylvania back to Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of states in the South, right, that are traditionally known as like huge quail species, you know, states, um, that they're having trouble with quail numbers. So if they're having trouble with quail numbers, uh, you know, trying to get, let's just say getting Pennsylvania back to having a huntable population is going to be quite an uphill battle. It is. And, you know, I spent a lot
1: of my career in the southeastern United States, and I've worked with quail quite a bit, actually, as a biologist. And the southeastern states, um, they struggle, they continue to struggle and have all throughout my career struggled with uh, Bob White Quail, mainly because of a couple, because of changes in land use. So one of the big changes in the southeastern United States was the Natural Resources Conservation Service as part of the Conservation Reserve Program, which is a program to stabilize soils, um, started planting what they call CP3 pine. CP3 is just the name of the program. And basically planting loblolly pine. Well, these loblolly pine, as they grow, are not no longer quail habitat. In addition to that, the changing and changing changes to agriculture, the way we, we use them, for example, uh Roundup Ready crops, these, these crops that basically get rid of the weeds and just allow the agricultural plant to grow, which is great for production, but not so good for um, species like bobwhite quail. So um, they struggle in the Southeast and will struggle here in Pennsylvania. The habitat though, that's been put in and uh, trying to think of the acreage, somewhere around 15, 1700 acres. So it's a very large tract is phenomenal. It's breathtaking to look at the habitat work. And then it's interesting, the, what we call, uh, grassland obligate species of birds. So these are birds that require grasslands to be there. <clears throat> We're seeing a huge uptick in their populations, um, Woodcock, for example, we're seeing Woodcock on that site like they've never seen before just because the habitat's there. It's been created. So pretty excited. This was actually an initiative that was brought by the board of directors, board of commissioners, uh, back in about 2012, 13, 14. And we maintained focus, continued to work through that process. And building habitat takes time, takes a lot of time. But we got there and we did it right. We've had a lot of experts from Uh, For example, Tall Timbers, which is in that North Georgia or North Florida, South Georgia. That's the famous Red Hills region uh, for Bob White quail and and really amazing place to go visit. Um, And they've looked at it. We've had various other experts come out and look at it. Everybody's really confident in what we've developed and uh, the successes. You know, not that it's not going to be challenging, uh, but we're feeling real good about
0: it. So, I want to back up real quick because you were talking about deer, uh, you know, and, and the numbers and trying to manage them. And unfortunately, as you so eloquently put there, that they're not like peanut butter, you can't spread them evenly. Um, there's this continual push, uh, from the game commission, from a lot of people, that there needs to be a greater dough harvest. But you're saying mm-hmm. you're struggling meeting those sort of goals that you have in the harvest. Like, what do you? what do you recommend for the people out there that are saying like, well, I'm not going to shoot a doe because I'm not seeing deer um, or as many deer as, as I would like, like what, where's the, there's a disconnect at, for some hunters and yeah. you know, the, the harvest goals. Where, where does that come from? Well, I think it's, it's uh, what
1: we all want from the same resource. So, when we look at white-tailed deer populations, you know, we, and we go back to the North American model of wildlife conservation and the basis, basis foundational fundamental aspect of it is the public but is the public trust doctrine. Basically, the public trust doctrine says that the wildlife resource belongs to the, all the citizens of the state here in Pennsylvania in this case. And now when you look at the customers or the citizens of Pennsylvania, well, I've got this citizen over here who has a home with bushes that the deer are eating the crap out of them and eating it down to the ground two houses down. I've got a landowner likes to, f- a homeowner likes to feed the deer and has the deer named and doesn't want their deer harmed in any way. So they definitely don't agree on where deer population should be. I've got motorists who really don't like to see the uh, whitetail deer end up in the front hood of their vehicle. I've got forest landowners who are trying to grow trees. Uh, That's how they make their income and their living, and trees can obviously eat a lot of seedlings and uh, hurt the future production of our forests. I've got farmers that, you know, they want to grow crops and be profitable, and we have deer that are, you know, depredating on crops and reducing that profitability. And then I've got hunters, and hunters typically want to see more deer. So the problem and the difficulties in deer management is, We're managing for the citizens of Pennsylvania, and we definitely are geared our management options towards providing recreational hunting opportunities. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, we still need to consider the the wants and needs of other stakeholders that do have a say in deer management. In the case of, and then we have other complicating factors like the spread of CWD. We know that if deer densities are high, the spread of CWD is going to be faster. It's no different than if you had covid you went to church and the church was packed. More people are going to get sick with COVID if the church is packed, where if you sit every other pew, Um, it's just, that's the way diseases work. So I think the disconnect is really the expectations of the different uh, stakeholder groups of what they want to see from the deer population. Um, You know, I know I hear, I see the social media posts and uh, I get the letters and I get the emails where, you know, encouraging people to, to uh, buy their doe licenses and burn them all and keep one. Well, that's fine because, you know, we basically still um, look at the number of tags it takes to harvest a deer. That's fundamentally, in a simplified way, how we determine if we need to kill 3,000 deer in this wildlife management unit. In many cases, you know, we know we're going to need four tags to get that harvest. So we're trying to hit that goal. We're not trying to wipe out the deer. And most wildlife management units, we're just trying to stabilize the deer herd. Now, as the deer herd climbs, you have in order to, as it keeps climbing, sometimes you have to usually increase the uh allocation to stop that climb. And then you you can stabilize that climb. In areas where we have CWD, we're still struggling and trying to get that harvest level where we can get the deer numbers down a little bit uh to help limit the spread of CWD. You know, my fig- bigger, larger fear is in some of these, especially the CWD endemic areas that, you know, we're seeing hunters that, you know, just don't want to, that's our bigger fear is, you know, will the hunters really limit their hunting in those areas because of the prevalence of cwd i mean in some of these areas you know we're getting you know 25 35 45 percent of the deer that are testing positive for cwd in the endemic areas so that's they're very much a long-term concern for us as an agency
0: yeah, uh, yeah i mean uh, as happy as, as i was this year to um you know harvest the buck uh family members harvesting dough you know all that stuff um Really, it was a, a sense of relief when I got my CWD test result, you know, postcard in the mail and I check online and it's not detected, you know, like that, that makes me feel very relieved um, yeah. that, that it hasn't gotten to to us yet. Um, but, you know, it, this disconnect, it's interesting because, you know, on the, on the property that my family has, we, we have, we get 3D map tags every year for our, our property um, to, and, in addition to the doe tags that we get to try to uh, do our part in managing the deer herd in our area. And, you know, I have a coworker that has a cabin, not all that far from us, many miles, but not all that far. And they don't see, they're closer to the Allegheny National Forest and they don't see as many deer as we do. And, you know, I see this disconnect, and it's like, well, of course, there's a disconnect. The game commission is trying to manage the herd for the entire state, so they try to make it easier on themselves by they trying to manage based on a management unit that's mm-hmm. still, you know, large, hun- hun- yeah, uh, you know, hundreds or, or thousands of square miles. Um, you're looking at your 50 or 100 or 200 acres that you're hunting in, um, that's a very small area, and uh you know so you need to make your decisions right based on your area and if you're not seeing deer because of hunting pressure because the habitat has changed and it's not good anymore um or because just the deer numbers aren't 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 that high in that area or as high as you want them to be in that area there are areas in the state that you can go to um you can go down the road probably just a couple miles, uh, maybe twenty miles and find a farm that has you know d map tags that you can hunt on that property because that as you mentioned, there's farmers that don't really like deer eating their crops. you know like there there's options out there. It just may require a little bit more work than just um you know walking fifty yards off the road and plopping down at the same tree that that you've sat at for the past twenty or, or thirty years.
1: yeah, I even look where I hunt on on public lands up in 2g. Um, you know, I've got some, a couple of my hunters in my camp, uh, they have this tree stand and it's always been in the same tree stand because about three, four years ago for two successive years, they each got a buck out of the stand. And for the last two years I've been in camp seeing deer, hi, I've seen deer. And I sat there all day and I'm like, well, move your stand <laughs> you know, because there are, I see plenty of deer in there. It's just, they're not, there's a lot of, so maybe that's part of the disconnect is, we don't always understand why deer may not be in this ten or twenty acres. And you we look at us as hunters. We really don't hunt in very large areas. Yeah, we may do a walkabout or cover some ground, but pretty much we're looking at the same ten acres of land. Um, and when you look at whitetail deer, you know when you look at some when we increase allocations, uh, antlerless allocations, usually we're only looking at harvesting one more deer per square mile. That's not many deer if you think about it. One. So if we increase allocations and we're very conservative in how we um, increase and decrease our, if you'll notice, we're very slow about it on purpose um, because we want to be able to measure our results and be very calculated in how we manage the deer herd. So we're talking in the disease management areas, uh, the allocations were increased just to take two more antlerless deer per square mile. So in some of the areas, you know, we talk about deer density. Well, that can vary between, say, southern Pennsylvania, where you've got a lot more agriculture and the, the deer herd can be higher because there's a lot more food availability there, versus your northern tier, which more of your large woods, where there just isn't as much uh, food there. So, you know, it's it's that's why the WMUs were structured to kind to make that homogeneous. In other words, the habitats within those WMUs are, uh, are very similar. So 2G is going to be much different than a 5C, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're very conservative in our approach and how we incrementally increase or decrease allocations, and they're based on the numbers and based on the deer management plan. So, you know, I get a question sometimes about uh, here I was last year, the year before uh, the Board of Commissioners made the decision that because every year before antlers allocations, they would look at them, and then one commissioner would do it for his wildlife management unit and increase them or decrease them. And if you think about it, you know, we shouldn't be changing those, making those decisions in that way because it's, what is it based on? What information is it based on? It's really not based on any information. If if we need to change anything, we should change the deer management plan if the expectations of the management plan aren't meeting the desires. Um, and then I think as hunters, we need to look at all the other implications of the, you know, I'm a hunter just like anybody else. And I want, to, I'd love to see 30 deer a day. If I saw 30 deer a day in 2G where I hunt, man, I got a problem because I don't know what the heck they're going to eat. Um, there's just not that much food, 30 deer, and I'm only maybe covering 10 acres. That's not a, that's not a lot of property. So, um, you know, I think that's where the, some of the disconnect comes. And I think also, the ability of deer to respond to human pressure in the woods, even light human pressure where they become nocturnal and they hide. And, you know, especially look at rifle deer season, which is really much after that peak rut. So those deer aren't afraid to hole up. And, you know, I hunted uh, the opening weekend and uh, we put in these little drives, just real slow drives. I saw so much fresh deer sign, but I'm convinced this day the deer were up there that night. But then in the, and during the day, they just crossed the ridge and got in a thick mountain laurel on the side of the mountain.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just anecdotally, you know, on, on the first day of rifle season, you know, I, I shoot a doe and three other doe just stand there, you yeah. know, and they just sort of mill about a little bit before they run off. Uh, the last day of rifle season, I shoot a doe and the three or four deer that are with that doe uh, just scatter as soon as that trigger is pulled, you know, because... They know what that sound means now. You know, it's been yeah. two weeks um, th- and it didn't take them two weeks to figure that out. But, um, you know, it only took them a couple hours, but they figure it out. They're they're very smart. We sometimes don't give them the credit uh, that they should get uh, <laughs> due for them. When it this comes is a to species that. that's been dealing with predators for Millions of years,
1: mm-hmm. and they are very, very good at a scraping. I think. I think the other thing, and I, I see this in some of the hunting videos. I, I like to watch the hunting videos in Pennsylvania because you hear what they're talking about and what their feelings are. And and this is something I hear very commonly that oh, I didn't hear any shooting, and I didn't see any deer. There must not be any deer. Well, you'd be how you'd be surprised how far a rifle shot doesn't carry, and you know how many times I've talked to hunters that. I didn't see any deer and I didn't hear much shooting, but I talked to my buddies half mile down the road and they said, my gosh, it sounded like a war zone. Mm -hmm. Another interesting figure I was uh, looking at, and I I see this disconnect sometime when the commissioners finally went to a um, uh, doe and buck throughout the rifle deer season, Uh, you know, was the thought was, oh, we're just eliminating all the does. But when you look at the number of deer it takes to harvest uh, for, for how many tags, it's still four tags. That number has not changed from when they were split till when they um, were run the whole season. And it came up, comes up, it varies between 0. 0.25 and 0. 0.7 deer per tag, uh, which re- works out to about, a, you know, one in four tags is going to be harvested doe. So even though we extended the season or gave them two contiguous weeks where they could just harvest a buck or a doe, typical what we're seeing is a lot of hunters are still waiting for that buck before they want to pull the trigger on a doe But then you have some of the folks that have very limited time, and they're happy with a buck or a doe, and they may take a a doe that first day or two. Um, So you still see that buck bias, if you will, or that antler disease, where everybody's waiting for their buck, and they don't want to pull the trigger because they think that Mm -hmm. that's going to scare the bucks away.
0: Yeah. One more thing about deer. Um, You know, this past year in 2023. Pennsylvania finally made the switch away from the pink envelopes for those antlerless deer tags. Uh, There was, you know, and this is something we talked about in Benazette at the Elk Expo. There was a little bit of um, controversy around it, right? There was an overload of the system on the first day, um, but really it seemed like it pretty, I mean, it went off pretty good. Now that the dust has sort of settled, right? And people, deer season finally came. Um, people have been putting tags on deer that they've harvested. What's the What's the thought from the Game Commission as far as in 2024? Is it going to look similar? Is there going to be a big wide change or um, is it just going to be minor tweaks?
1: Yeah, I just came out from a meeting with our vendor um, as we continue to work through the system. Overall, as we look back, except for that first day, it was a Raging success Um, I heard from so many hunters and even on opening day, uh, every a lot of people go to the big box stores and I heard from so many hunters that said I went to mom and Joe's uh, bait shop and there was no line at all. I went and got my license and I left. You know, I got up uh, the second day of license sales before I went to the gym and logged on. I was in and out in three and a half minutes and it was over and done. I am a 2G tag and all my licenses. and It was easy from there. Uh, So, you know, but the question is, is that opening day? Now, there's no system hunting license system like in Amazon. Amazon, uh, oh gosh, you know, where they have a million and a half staff. They have, you know, their revenues, I think, in what, $1.3 trillion. We're, We're talking a different animal altogether when you're talking about Amazon versus selling hunting and licenses. And it is actually very common throughout the United States for these systems to even fail and crash. Uh, there was one state, I can't remember which one, I think it was down for a week, um, which is pretty devastating. It does, it does happen. So, you know, and with the tough thing about building a system that to handle these these license sales, it's not like Amazon. Amazon has, you know, of course, during the holidays, they're going to have a real peak load, but they're doing business all year round. When it comes to hunting, hunting licenses and even fishing licenses, there are these peak days. For us, it's the opening day and opening day is almost like a religious holiday in Pennsylvania it's what everybody is there for I opening day you know it was it was a rough day and I went down to the local bass pro and I just walked up and down the line and talked to the hunters you know what 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 wildlife management are are you getting an antlerous license and I don't know how many of them said well I'm getting one for 5c and I'm like you know 5c never comes close to selling out why are you standing in line he says well I just want to come and check it out you know it's fun and you know, everybody's getting out their phone, showing me their bucks and, you know, was, we had a good time and, and um, but the, the opening day is the struggle. So are we going to see any big changes, how we do it? We're still discussing that of what we can do because we want to make, obviously, the customer experience as enjoyable as we can. We want to make it easy and efficient, just like it is the rest of the season. We had no issues throughout the rest of the season with the licensing system. So we are looking, the easiest thing to do, As far as customer service and the purchasing experience is to do what we did this year is, you know, hey, go in there, you can get them and you're done. Um, You know, there's been suggestions. well can they go in and get their hunting license and then come back and get their antlerous license? Well, that kind of defeats the purpose. The whole purpose is one stop. You're done. You're out. You got your license. You can go hunt. So we're looking at a lot, some different options. Do Can we tweak it to kind of spread that load out? Uh, definitely going to be doing some more communications to hunters to encourage them that, hey, if you're going for a 5C tag or a 5A tag or, you know, when that typically doesn't even sell out the first round, take your time, do it when it's convenient for you. Because after all, that's the whole purpose of this change from the from the pink envelopes was to make it more convenient for hunters just to walk into their local vendor or go online and make that purchase. What was interesting this year is the dramatic increase, which really surprised everybody, in online sales. I mean, it was through the roof, the number, the percentages of people, of individuals that went online to to purchase their license. People like me, that's how I purchase everything. Uh, You know, I'm not going to go to a store. don't need to um i go to my smartphone order it and i'm done so uh that that was a change but you know we're working really hard to uh continue to to get the fixes done you know throughout the rest of the license sales we had fixed most of the problems now it's really fine fine tuning and really doing what we can to maximize optimization of the unit but it's only still going to process so many orders you know per minute you know there is a there is a finite limit to what it can do, which is why we have what we call that QIT Q- Q- system. So the QIT is basically like a waiting room when you go see a doctor. You got one doctor, you guys all these patients come in, they sit in the waiting room and then they call you in one at a time based on when the doctor can handle the workload. Uh, the QIT is the basically the same time. You go into the waiting room and then you're randomly assigned a number and then it puts you in uh, as the system uh, can handle you and then allows you to process your order. Otherwise you get too many in and the system will crash. Um, so this is a very common program that, that most states use in order to manage that, uh, that input in there. So I was, I was very excited about how it went, except for the first day. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing some t- small tweaks, I anticipate, uh, and definitely some big tweaks in our communications. One of the things we can do this year that we couldn't do before, we now have a track record because this did completely change mm-hmm. purchasing beh- habits. And it can be a little dangerous to say, well, we think it's going to be this. No, we said, we don't know what it's gonna be, but we did plan for worst case scenarios. But some of those worst case scenarios, there's only a, so much of a limit that technology can get you. Yeah, I'd like be nice to get a spaceship that take you in the moon in two hours. We have technology limits there. We're not gonna get you there
0: in two hours. Just or how long it takes to get to the moon. Never
1: been myself, but
0: yeah you know there's there's definitely some validity to the novelty aspect right for all those people on the first day i was one of those people after a while i got i got on that queue right um online um just to see like what's going on and there was no reason for me to do that um 2F is the management unit that I do most of my hunting, and um, I actually got a second tag through the second round, which I had never done before, you know, um, so there's some, there's definitely that novelty, and then there, I'm sure there was also a little bit of, because it was going to be, in theory, so much easier to get your doe tags, oh, I got to get on before everyone else so my unit doesn't sell out, you know, there was a little bit of fear for that, so with this track record of one year and and sort of seeing how those numbers played out, hopefully, you know, people like myself sort of say, "eh, I'll wait until the third day, fourth day. Like, I'm I'm not going to miss anything for my management unit. Um, yeah, we had a lot of people standing in line that had their smartphone
1: open, trying to get on online while they stood in line at the vendor at the box store trying to order their license over the counter. So we were tying up a line in the store and the system up at the same time. And if I remember the number right, we had what we call uh, lost leads. So 16,000, I think it was the number of lost leads where people, you know, were waiting, waiting, cause they were in line they finally got a license online and it dropped off. So they just, it just ch- plugs up the system.
0: Yeah. You know, a couple of times you've mentioned um, the commissioners, the board of commissioners and mm-hmm. sort of the process and them sort of voting on things and, and talking about things. How, how does that work? Like how, how does you have something that you think, you know, as, as an agency you want to do, you want to implement. Um, what's the role of the board of commissioners and how's that, process sort of play out? Yeah,
1: so the the role of the commissioner, so the commissioners, we have nine commissioners, and they are uh, nominated by the governor, and then approved by the senate, and they are basically regular citizens. They're, they're, as hunters, they are our peers. They are just regular hunters from one of nine districts, uh, and they are chosen from a district, uh, so they have some perception of what goes on, at least in their area, but when they make a vote, they're not making a vote for their district. Uh, If you think about Years ago, when they were making small minor tweaks to their antlerless allocations in a district, really didn't make sense because, by definition, the commissioners representing all citizens of Pennsylvania, not just their district. So, um, there was a lot of reasons that that was put in place. And it's not that the commissioners couldn't take a vote and say, "Hey, we want to change these and go down a little bit." They have absolute authority to do that. That, that changing that was just more of a procedural uh, policy level. rather than that they can't make changes, because they certainly can. The Board of Commissioners, they can make those policy decisions. So the role of the Board of Commissioners is to set policy the agencies, mainly seasons and bag limits, uh, rules and regulations for how, you know, what type of firearms we can use to how we use game lands. They set those rules, regulations, seasons, and bag limits. Uh, That isn't done by me, the executive director. I'm hired by the Board of Commissioners. I'm their only employee my job is to manage the agency uh, is to make sure the work gets done to make sure the strategic plan gets fulfilled and to implement the policy decisions as approved by the board of commissioners so they approve the policy my job is to make sure staff implement that policy so it's often i i run into this all all the time well i don't like that reg change you need to change that i can't change it i'm just the executive director now, only the board of commissioners can do that and this was the way wildlife agencies were set up from the start. And this they were set up this way for a number of great reasons. It's a very good system. There is no such thing as a perfect system. Um, after all, we're dealing with people. Um, but it's a very good system because at least it's the sportsmen and women of the state of Pennsylvania that are determining what the seasons and bags should be, uh, not a bureaucrat like myself and my colleagues that are making those decisions for the sportsmen. Because uh, because we have as, an, as administrators and technical, you know, whether you're a scientist or a forester here at the Pennsylvania Game Commission or you're a habitat management crew managing habitat, we're gonna have a little bit of different perception because we're out on the ground all the time. We see things every single day. Um, and it's that's where it's all filtered through that board of commissioners uh, who have to balance both the science and the social aspect of wildlife policy. And wildlife policy is very very challenging because if, if you think about it, you can change policy that makes perfect biological and scientific and economic reason to do it. But the social side, is so powerful that it's just something you can't do. And that's the tough part in, in wildlife policy is that just because it makes financial sense and biological sense, if it doesn't make good social sense, that's the price you, you're gonna pay and the risk you take. And that's has to all be balanced. And the Board of Commissioners, number one, they're volunteers, they're not paid. These are not paid positions. Um, they can serve up to three terms of four year, years each. Uh, they have to go back through the interview uh, process after every four years. Uh, they're donating their time and their talents, and they put a lot of work into being a commissioner. They go to meetings. They go to, of course, the uh, board meetings here with the commissioners. They go to sportsman clubs. They're all over the place uh, trying to share that information, answer questions. Um, and They they do an f- absolutely fantastic job of doing that. Not, we're blessed in Pennsylvania to still have this system. We have about half the states in the United States that have independent agencies and the rest of them are what we call super agencies, um, which are basically under the governor's jurisdiction directly. Not that the governor doesn't have control, but we're not, we're an independent agency. doesn't mean we can't listen to.
0: Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing to me about the commissioners is as I've become more aware and watched a couple of these, um, commission, you know, some of these meetings that they've had where they've approved, you know, bag limits and things like that is that, um, None of these people ha- are coming in and being like, this is the way I want it, and this is the way it's going to be done. Um, they're coming in and they're saying, okay, this is what the biologists are telling us through their research. This is what history tells us through what has been done in this state and in states like Pennsylvania. And then this is what a representative amount of residents within my district sort of think on the matter. And they just sort of, as you said, sort of blend that all together that gets filtered through them and then they make a decision like it's not, you know, like, well, this isn't going to benefit me. So I'm going to vote no, um, you know, that that's it's not it really does seem like a democratic style system, right, where you they just take all this information and they're really trying to do what's best for everyone in the state of Pennsylvania, you know, financially for the wildlife social side all that stuff it truly is democratic and the reality of it is for every decision a commissioner makes
1: and i don't care if it's the length of groundhog season no matter what decision they make there will be hunters that like it and don't like it and we're not going to hear from the ones that like it they're happy the ones that don't like it will be vocal and loud and go to their their representatives and their senators and voice their concerns and that's part of our democratic process but the fact of the matter is there is no one reg that is going to make everybody happy. That That's a land that doesn't exist. If it did, I would really like to buy a couple tickets, <laughs> one-way tickets to go to that land, but it doesn't exist. And you know, you'll hear, why is it so controversial? Well, wildlife management, developing wildlife policy is always confrontational because of the public trust doctrine where we have so many stakeholders who want different things from the same resource.
0: Yeah, you know... I look, at, I look at decisions made, you know, with the agency, um, season lengths, the way seasons go, you know, the way they're structured, um, antler restrictions, all kinds of different stuff. Uh, do I agree with all of it? No. Uh, when you actually look at it for what it's worth and not just how does this apply to me and you see that sometimes decisions are made to benefit other people that are hunters or other people that maybe aren't hunters, uh, you know, you tend to be like, okay, well, I don't like, I wouldn't have chosen to do this, but I understand why they're doing it. You know, right. like that, there's this... no
1: nefarious reason that they're doing it, which yeah. is why we don't have board positions that are, for example, uh, held for a special interest group, uh, because that would basically go against really what the whole board is trying to do in a democratic process is to not be, um, there to represent represent a specific special interest group they're there as hunters and trappers and outdoors people that are want to do good, do right for the entire state of pennsylvania
0: and one of these sort of plans one of these things that's sort of coming um in bits and pieces into you know the, the commissioner's purview uh is the martin reintroduction and actually you know i i've had a whole episode dedicated to this plan and sort of the general process on how it plays out. Um, Where are we at in that process and how close are we to either implementing it or saying, no, we're not going to do it. It'll
1: be at this January meeting. That's where that, this is the final step where the commissioners will have to do one of three things. They can approve it. And then we can move into restoration They could table it and and take more time to continue to look at the issue or three, they could just say, no, we're not going to do it. So those are their three options before them. Uh, So this has gone through a big public process. Again, part of that democratic system of being very transparent, giving the public right now, we just uh, we're were the plan It was released. The previous board meeting for public comment and that's what we did we got public comment put all those together um, we're giving those the board is going to be getting that information about now it's getting put together they're also going to be looking at the additional survey work we did see what hunter's opinions are in addition to the other citizens of
0: pennsylvania and then bless them all they got to balance all that out <laughs> yeah and, and this is one of the things that I, I want people to realize Let's just say hypothetically at this next uh, board meeting, they approve the plan. That does not mean that the next day there's going to be thousands of Martins released all willy nilly all over Pennsylvania. Like that a very targeted
1: small area,
0: very targeted. And it's still slow. Like we still like these these animals aren't going to be trapped and held and like just waiting for the plan to be implemented once it's implemented then we have to go about the whole process in other states of trapping these wild animals bringing them into the state so this isn't this is still a slow process even if it gets approved um so don't don't just because you see the approval doesn't mean oh no look out martin are going to be overrunning the, the entire state now
1: a lot of people make that comparison to fishers. Now, the fisher is an animal in Pennsylvania that gets blamed for so many things that it doesn't even do. I swear it's gotten blamed for car accidents, killing all the turkeys, killing all the grouse, killing all the deer. That poor animal does more bad than it, it has no idea. Um, and but but one thing's about fishers is they they have they do have a you know a larger range uh, of suitable habitat that they can occupy as compared to the fisher, which is has more specific habitat conditions. And and remember, we're talking about something that's the size of a red squirrel, or not a red squirrel, a fox squirrel. This is not a very big weasel. And I I think the, unfortunately, the fisher has stigmatized predators, um, unfortunately. And, And the role of predation in nature is far more complex than typically we really often think about. Uh, you know, I'll just give you an example, you know, coyotes is probably the number two animal that gets playing for everything uh, from car accidents to global climate change to you name it. Um, and yet, what if, let's look at what coyotes eat. Well, coyotes will eat raccoons. Raccoons are prey species. Raccoons will eat, or uh, uh, coyotes will eat black rat snakes. And black black rat snakes are egg predators. They will eat things. So those predators eat other predators. So it's it's far more complicated then we really look, then then most of us look at predation and system as merely, well, they're just going to eat a prey species. Well, that prey doesn't need necessarily going to be a grouse or a turkey or a a songbird. It could also be another predator. So there's that whole balancing act that goes on.
0: My next to last, second to last uh, question for you is uh, about Sunday hunting right mm-hmm. we currently have in the state of Pennsylvania 3 day 3 Sundays that that you can hunt um one during archery deer season one during rifle bear season one during rifle deer season and um so who has control over whether more Sundays get added and who should people talk to about either wanting to add more days or voicing their opposition to the Sunday hunting yeah the, the Pennsylvania Game Commission is granted that
1: authority only from the state legislature. So we were given the authority to use three days. Uh, if We we would love to use more Sundays to offer hunting opportunity, but the legislature has to grant us that authorization. So if they want to see more Sunday hunting opportunities, less Sunday hunting opportunities. That is controlled by the members of the legislature, and they pass laws to determine what that looks like. So when you look at how the game commission operates we have to remember that it's the legislature that sets kind of the sidebars sideboards of okay game commission you're gonna you're gonna have authority between here and here to operate and that's where the board of commissioners operate between those sideboards of where they can make rules and regulations they can't go outside of those sideboards or it's illegal um, and it it, it will not ever pass uh, because the commonwealth will shut that down So they are specifically operating within the guidelines of the legislature, which is perfectly appropriate.
0: Yeah, just just want to make it clear for people listening. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, um, voice your opinion to the people that can actually make a difference. Um, Mm -hmm. Right now, that's not people within the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, If the legislature does decide to say, hey. Game Commission, you have full control, do whatever you want with the Sundays, Uh, then. The opinion can be directed towards the game commission as far as how to handle that within those as you mentioned sideboards uh and then i have to i have to finish up this this talk with our um sort of traditional uh question to end um mountain lions in pennsylvania yes or no uh
1: no <laughs> are there uh, are there is there a reproducing population of mountain lions in Pennsylvania? Uh, I am quite sure no. Uh, is there an opportunity that mountain lion could pass through Pennsylvania? Yes. Uh, mountain lions have extremely large home ranges and can go on walkabouts and end up in surprising places. Years ago, we had one show up in Connecticut. There's a lot of reasons why mountain lions would never make it in Pennsylvania. Number one, Pennsylvania is one of the most roaded states in the country. Mountain lions are not like Typical medium sized predators like we have coyotes and raccoons and, and fishers and whatnot, uh, mountain lions are far, uh, their, their densities are just automatically going to be lower. Uh, they would get wiped out on roads in a heartbeat. So they just not, it's not conducive to agriculture in Pennsylvania. It's not conducive to the road system in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I just, you know, yeah, we have some pretty big places in Pennsylvania, uh, but there's still roads running around all of them. A quick check of Onyx will show us that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when you get that picture on your trail camera of a cat, um, do yourself a favor. And before you think that is a mountain lion, go out and just measure a log or a tree that's near where that cat was in the picture and see, you know, if that log was actually only nine inches, uh, then you have a nine-inch cat. You don't have you know this <laughs> because the show cameras they, they they sort of play visual tricks on you sometimes when you look at it. So, oh, uh, yeah, and, and you got to remember too that the, the the tail on a
1: mountain lion is far longer in comparison to his body than a than a cat. And yeah, uh, you know, there's some Facebook sites you can go on about mountain lions, and oh, yeah, in I always enjoy looking at those and. I've had so many hunters come up to me and, you know, in meetings and say, I saw a mountain lion. I'm not going to doubt what you saw,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we have no evidence of any.
0: Mm-hmm. So Brian, I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this, making this sort of a yearly tradition, Um, you know, good luck uh in the spring. And um, hopefully we have a successful season just as, as we have in the past. Absolutely. Only four months and a few days away from spring turkey. <laughs> I know that's what gets you excited. Oh boy. <laughs> all right that'll do it for this episode if you didn't notice there is a new logo for the podcast yes we did a quick quiet rebrand of just a new logo uh so just trying to make things a little bit different here in the uh season number seven jeez man uh we are uh definitely trying to expand and trying to do more this year. And you will see that uh, with episodes like this, talking with Brian. This has become a a little bit of an annual thing with Brian and fully expect to see some of the other agencies in Pennsylvania also giving sort of their state of the union of, of how 2023 was and how 2024 plans to go. So look for those episodes here in the future. One thing I do want to piggyback off of with Brian uh, and what he had to say is, is the, de- the deer numbers in the doe harvest. Um, and what I talked about in the episode, uh, you know, th- there is an overabundance of deer in certain areas in Pennsylvania. And there are areas in Pennsylvania where the deer numbers are very low. When you see that doe, you know, antlerless deer license allocations are going up for management units um you know from you know year over year uh don't equate that with what you see on the ground because it's not always the same those management units while they have been drilled down smaller uh, than what they used to be and they tried to m- sort of match habitat uh, it's still very large you need to do what is best for your property Uh, and the, honestly, the best way to be able to do that and sort of get a grip of what's going on on your property, where you hunt, whether that's game lands or private, private property, um, or any type of other public land. Uh, if you have private property, you know, get a biologist, uh, from the PGC, it's free to stop at your, and and walk your property. Um, talk to the game wardens that are around that area, sort of get a general idea of, of what everyone's seeing and, you know. Are the deer numbers high or are they low? And then do your part. Uh, if you get a doe license, you know you get that antlerless license, use it. Okay? We, you know, it, the game commission puts those out there because they want people to use them. So uh, help the game commission as best you can. Get your deer tested for CWD, even if you're not that close to a CWD area. It's still good, just for the scientific aspect. Uh, even if you're not worried about consuming meat from CWD deer, uh, you should still do it just to help the sort of research uh, arm of the BGC. Uh, just this year, you know, we, off of our property, uh, we have five of the seven deer that were taken here uh, tested, and happy for us, all five tested negative, negative. and, you know, that's something we're going to try to continue to do is test as many as we can just because we, I want to be part of that scientific aspect. Um, and and trying to help find a cure uh, for CWD. Until the next episode, get outside, take someone with you, and, of course, stay wild.